The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. In some ways, you've got to be a a junior data scientist. You've got to constantly be testing and figuring out what's working, what's not. The idea that you can come up with generalizations that are going to apply to every situation, every environment just doesn't work. And that's another thing that's kind of cool about special forces, highly adaptable, not rigid. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to episode three of Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. Today, I was really excited to sit down with Jan Rutherford. Jan is a fascinating guy because he happens to be one of the smallest men to have ever served in the special forces of the military, specifically the Green Berets. And he was just over 100 pounds and five foot four inches tall when he joined. Jan is the author of The Littlest Green Beret, and he can be found at selfrelientleadership.com. One of the things that I was intrigued about and have been intrigued since I met Jan a while back was these crucibles that he orchestrates. And this is where he takes high-level men and women from special forces and high-level men and women from corporate leadership positions on extreme adventures where they rely on one another and experience really challenging physical adventures. And I've been very intrigued to try one, although I kind of wonder if maybe I'm too wimpy. But in this interview, we talk about what is revealed and some of the surprises and some of the things that would not be revealed in non-challenging situations, non-physically challenging situations. We talk about what is asked and what is not asked of military and from military to corporate people, kind of the elephant in the room questions. We talk about the role of diversity in the military. Is there a downside to diversity? That's an elephant in the room question. We talk about the role of women in the military. I learned something interesting today. I learned what a poner is, and you're going to have to stay tuned. Listen to the episode. We talked about things like force multipliers and how do you know when to quit? I think that's something a lot of us grapple with. We touched upon and kind of delved into how do you know when to quit, especially when there's this whole platitude of never quit. Is that really true? And how do you know when it is and isn't? Talked about the role of values in decision making and what it means to hear the unheard. We also talked about how to avoid getting fired because he narrowly escaped getting kicked out of his qualifications and how he used that particular lesson, translated that into the corporate world and how you can use those same takeaways as well. We talked about what it was like to serve in peacetime versus non-peacetime and some of the benefits of experiencing both. 
we delved into a lot. And I asked a lot of questions that might otherwise be seen as inappropriate. But again, this is all about elevating curiosity ahead of criticism, judgment, fear, and complacency. And I'm hoping that there are plenty of insights, wisdom, and even actionable bits that you can then apply to your own life. So let's have at it. Here's my interview with Jan Rutherford. Hi, Jan. How are you? I'm good, Becky. I'm glad to be here today. I'm glad you're here. It's fun that we're here actually in my office slash studio instead of over Skype. Yes, beautiful, hazy, but warm Portland today. I know. It's glad to be able to snag you when you're in town for a minute. (laughs) All right. So I was thinking about you as a 17-year-old 100-pound, four guy telling your family that you're going to join the military, the army, and then go for the Green Berets. And I thought about your dad. And this is something I read about in your book where your dad bet you $1,000 that you yes, wouldn't make did. it through basic training and $10,000 that you wouldn't make it as a Green Beret. Did he ever pay up? He says to this day, you will never die broke, son, because I will always owe you money. <laughs> no, he never paid up. He never did. No, no. So was he one for big negative motivators? Well, honestly, my both my parents, they had to sign because I was only 17. This is back when the recruiters were kind of shady because they had quotas and they were lying to people and telling them you would get you know this beautiful station in the Bahamas and different crazy things. That's why that movie Private Benjamin came out with Goldie Hawn, because that's what was happening. So there's a lot of skepticism of, you know, was I actually going to get to go and compete to be a Green Beret? And then my parents honestly believed I'd be sent home from basic training. They actually thought I, I wouldn't make it. I'd come home. So they were more surprised that I thrived and did well there and then kept going and kept passing the schools and it all worked out. But it's interesting, you know, what positive and negative motivation, what sort of roles they play in in moving us forward. You already had your dream of being a football player thwarted (laughs) because of your size. What made you think, I mean, it's not like you hadn't had any experience with size getting in the way. What made you think you could do it? When the recruiter said I should go that route if I wanted to be the best medic in the army and jump out of planes, and he, he's the one that suggested special forces, and I didn't even know what it was. And he handed me the brochure, and it was these guys with big biceps, and I thought, there's no way. And he looked me dead in the eyes and said, you can do this. And again, his name was Sergeant Kyle Fleener from Tennessee. And to this day, I'm so grateful because I believed him. I mean, he believed in me. I believed it. And I thought, you know what? I can do it. And what I didn't know at that time that I've learned about myself is, boy, you know, personal self-discipline has a lot to do with, you know, outcomes. I sort of put my head down and and thought, you know, I'm going to prove all these people wrong. You quote Malcolm Gladwell, and I love, actually love this quote, and I've read it before, about his research where he says, being short is probably as much a handicap to corporate success as being a woman or an African-American. When it comes to leadership as a short man, right, do you consider yourself physically handicapped? I don't. I really don't. I always say, you know, the only time that I ever realize how short I am is two times. One, when I'm on the train at DIA at Denver International Airport, you can see your reflection. I'm like looking at everybody in the reflection and I'm like, gosh, I'm really little. I mean, like, I know I'm short, but then when I look in my, I'm like, I'm little, like I'm all the parts of my body are smaller than everybody else. 
And then when I'm at a, like a cocktail reception where everybody's standing instead of sitting and different things, those are times that I feel short. But as far as it being a handicap, I've never felt that. I do think often that people that are really good looking have it easy. I do think that sometimes because I've been around enough people, men and women, and watch how people react to very handsome people. It's different. It's different. So what does someone do? What are some of the tactics? Are there some tactics or is it just something natural that you have this natural self-assurance and it doesn't really occur to you? Or is there something, other takeaways that you could say, okay, these are some things that I know that I wouldn't know if I was six foot three? Great question. And I do think what we look like has a lot to do with who we become. If you look, there's a lot of comedians that are fat and you know they're funny. It's like, well, they had to be you know, to deflect some of the criticism or some of the insecurities. You know, there's a whole notion of the short man syndrome or Napoleon syndrome where people that are short have a chip on their shoulder. They have something to prove or scrappy. I think there's something to that. I also think sometimes people that are really good looking are thought of as dumb. They didn't have to necessarily be smart and clever to get along. So I think there is something to that. But I again, I don't think of it as a as a handicap. I do think of it as if I was normal height, average height, I would be a different person than I am. I think in some ways I'm more driven because of that, because gosh, I'm going to prove people wrong. And I mean, there's a certain amount of pride knowing that when we're on rucksack marches in the qualification course to become a Green Beret, when I would see big guys, guys that look like the guys in the brochure fall out and quit. I mean, I, I felt guilty, but it actually made me happy and motivated because I'm like, I've got something they don't have. And it's not something you can see. I have an ability to suffer. I was talking to my physical therapist yesterday because I'm working on a shoulder thing. And he goes, well, what's the secret? And I was talking about, well, it's about embracing the suck. And he's like, embrace the suck. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, do you think that's genetic? Do you think you have some sort of genetic proclivity to embrace the suck? That's and a I good go, question. I go, I don't know. To me, it's like you just decide. And you decide suffering is temporary. Quitting's forever, but suffering is temporary. Is that part of your self-reliant leadership mantra? Yeah, I mean, part of it is. I mean, part of it's looking at adversity as an opportunity and a crisis. And we know from the book on authentic leadership, they looked at all these studies and they found that the people that were successful were constantly testing themselves and reframing their life story. Well. If you're always testing yourself, that means you're failing sometimes. But I think to me, the whole concept of a crucible, the expeditions that we lead, is there's got to be something hard, something challenging, something you have to overcome. Explain a little bit about your crucible to give context. What are the crucibles that yeah. you Yeah. So well, a crucible, as everyone might know, is, you know, it's a ceramic pot, you know, highly heated up, it melts metal into a liquid, it breaks down, makes it weak, so you can forge it into something even stronger, like a sword. Well, our crucible is a wilderness expedition that we run two, three times a year in cool places like Moab and Patagonia and New Zealand. And we take half executives and half special operations. And we believe that when people are cold, wet, tired, and hungry, and they face adversity, it reveals character with all its glory and all its flaws. But it also is a place where people can come together because the stakes in some ways are high. You really depend on each other. And we're looking for the lessons out there that we can apply back to the, to the business world. 
how do we get a team to really come together and be kind and positive and curious and and driven? What is the thing, if you had to pick one thing on your crucibles that has surprised the special ops side and one thing that has surprised the executive leadership side, what would those things be? Well, what surprises the special ops guys is that the problems that the business people have are problems they're familiar with. They're like, it's all people problems. It's teams and leadership. And Why are they surprised by that? Because they developed confidence in the military through competence. They thought that they're really good at their job because they knew everybody's job beneath them. And so what scares them about the business world is, well, how am I going to go lead people when I don't know business? They don't realize that you don't have to know everybody's job in the business world to be competent and to be a good leader. What surprises the business people is about the special operations guys is number one, how smart they are and intellectual. And the second is how kind they are and how collaborative they are when it comes to decision making. Why are they surprised about the intellectual component? Because they think they think Rambo. They think, you know, just a bunch of guys that are really strong. And what we know is, I mean, Green Berets, particularly are folks that are both warriors and diplomats, that they're military advisors. They have to go in and win the hearts and minds and influence people. They can't command and control their way into developing an army of indigenous guerrilla fighting force. They literally have to be diplomatic. And that's the first order of business is, you know, dig wells, take care of goats and chickens, deliver babies, give vaccinations, build bridges, repair things, fix the infrastructure, win hearts and minds, then figure out, well, how do you go from being oppressed to creating the environment that you want in your region, country, whatever it is. And what they're known as is force multipliers. And that's so applicable to the business world, not just to leaders and teams, but what a business and altruistic, a good business wants to do is they want to force multiply. They want to grow. They want to do good. They want to make a difference in the world. They, they have to force multiply. How do they recognize that when their primary goal is not force multiply, but ROI, return on investment. I see our ROI is the same thing. It's force multiply. I mean, you want to grow, you want to make money. There has to be value there. You've got to spread the word. You have to be passionate. People have to buy in. Even if you don't necessarily have 600 people working for you in your company, you want customers talking about your product, your offering, your service to other people. And in some ways, it's gotten easier with technology and social media, in some ways it's gotten more difficult because it's so crowded. You know, how are you going to stand out? There isn't a one size fits all. And I think part of it is we've got to be, I learned this from speaking with another guest on our podcast was I I think in some ways you've got to be a, a junior data scientist. You've got to constantly be testing and figuring out what's working, what's not. The idea that you can come up with generalizations that are going to apply to every situation, every environment just doesn't work. And that's another thing that's kind of cool about special forces, highly adaptable, not rigid. There's a reason that MacGyver was a Green Beret. You know, you oh, MacGyver. Oh, I didn't remember that. Special forces, you know, I mean, that y- you have to be resourceful. And think about the business world. There's never enough time, talent, treasure. Never. So like make do with what you got. That's that's cool. That's an opportunity. Most people go, oh, I don't have enough people. Oh, you know, our budget got cut. Oh, the the mean market is beating us up. The mentality that I would like is, isn't this a cool challenge? 
in this cool opportunity? How do we do this? What is the essential thing we need to focus on? So, okay, so I'm thinking about your crucibles and these two groups interacting. And I've heard you refer to this before, but what's a poner? <laughs> I, love, I love the kind of innuendo, but what's, the, what's, the, what's a poner? Let me give you the story behind that. We're out on a glacier in Patagonia. We're doing this 55-mile circuitous route, and we get about halfway in. We're about three days in, and one of the guys goes, yep, we're at the poner. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, we're at the point of no return. It's three days that way, three days that way. And look at the wind. Helicopters aren't getting in here. If anybody gets hurt, gets appendicitis, breaks your ankle, it's three days to get out of here if you're healthy. If anybody gets hurt, it's four, five, six days to get somebody evacuated. We are at the point of no return. We can't screw up. We must succeed. Failure is not an option. And when he said that, I thought, oh my God, that's it. That's the secret of a great team. The stakes have to be high. The goals have to be hard. Otherwise, the team doesn't come together. And in the whole adage of, you know, sort of burn the ships. At that point, our ships were burned. That's where we were. Anyway, it was kind of cool. It was a cool moment. It's interesting because everyone talks about never quit. But then you think, okay, well, really never quit? I mean, sometimes you have to evaluate opportunity costs and contrast those with sunk costs, right? So at the poner, the point of no return... It may be a balance between sunk costs. You could you could quit and go back. We could have. But it's the same amount of effort as going forward. So therefore, the math works to go forward. Yeah. Well, I had somebody in a lecture, or not a lecture, but a presentation one time say, you know, hey, Jan, I hear you about all that. Never quit. Aren't there times you should quit? And I thought, great question. I didn't have a good answer for him at the time. But I've talked to a lot of philosophers about that question. And I think I've got a better answer now. And that is, if the mission you're on is based on your values and something you're truly passionate about, you're not going to quit. I mean, there might be a point where you say, gosh, um, as an example, I want to go to med school. And you get through and you're like, "Ah, I I quit. I mean, it's just going to be too hard. The grades aren't coming. And it might have been, you know, if you were really committed to it, you wouldn't have quit. And whereas somebody in that same point with all the same circumstances goes, this is why I've lived my life. I need to serve mankind. I need to heal people and ease suffering and all that. They're going to go, well, you know what? There's options. I could go to med school overseas. I could become a, a DO instead of an MD, and which is a little easier entrance requirements. And there's different things. So I think that's the thing to evaluate when it comes to quitting. Trust me. I mean, I've, I've quit things in the business world. Physically, I've quit once. What was that? I was on a big 120-mile bike ride in Colorado with one of my best friends who had also been in the Army. And it started raining, unpredicted, freezing. We came down a mountain. We had hypothermia. We were shaken. We didn't even have good control of the bike. We ascended the next big mountain thinking, well, we'll warm up going up. We didn't warm up. And we said, this is nuts. We ride bikes for fun. This is no longer fun and this is dangerous, we're done. That was a good call. <laughs> I have no regrets. But that's the only thing physically I've ever, that I've ever quit. That was a good call. But I, <laughs> but I think, you know, back to your, I think about this platitude of never quit a lot. I've put a lot of time into thinking about how can you be curious about 
really evaluating it beyond the platitude, right? So I think about, this is one thing I really think about a lot. And that is, even in your example of medical school, I, you look at your kind of your meta message, I want to serve humankind, I want to heal people, whatever. It may mean that you do quit medical school because the opportunity to do something else the opportunity cost is too great to stay in medical school, even if you've sunk three years into medical school. And I think that it's easy to see the sunk costs, so we place a higher value on what we can see, but it's harder to evaluate the opportunity cost. So I think that sometimes that platitude gets in the way of actually focusing, like what you said, on the higher value. Yeah. The interesting thing about values, usually people think right off the bat is integrity. Well, that's what I value. I was with a guy this morning that I was coaching and it became very clear that two values he has in working with other people is preparation and punctuality. Super important to him. Not shared by his teammates. But those aren't things that are written on the website, on the corporate walls or anything, but something that he hasn't discussed. I think when we're really clear about what's important to us from a value perspective, you know, what drives us and we can prioritize it it can guide decisions. Now, the values that I have for me personally, I know what they are. I'm very clear on them. Those aren't necessarily the same values I have in working with other people and what I would hire, what I would look for. So again, I think like Socrates said, know thyself. When you know yourself, when you know what you value, you know what's important, it can help guide decision makings for the little things and the big things. It, it makes it a lot easier. But I would say to people that are out there that might be mid-career, early career, what I'm saying is those aren't things that came to me at a young age. I mean, those took a long time to figure out. And I wish I could tell you exactly how to figure that out sooner. I do think one of the ways is what I would say, hear the unheard. And you have to figure out how you hear the unheard. Give an example of hearing the unheard. I love how curious you are, Becky. Here's a great example. So I went out and did a week on the Colorado Trail by myself. And I thought I was going to work on the book and the business. And, you know, that's what I was going to do. I had my little journal and, and all that. I went out there and what I found challenging was not the physical part. That was hard. I knew it'd be hard. But I, what was really hard is I had no one with me. I saw nine people in a week and I had no ability to contrast my pain and suffering with anyone else. If I was with somebody, I could, I could know relatively like how I was doing. And I had no gauge, like mentally, physically, emotionally, how I was doing. I wasn't hearing something I didn't know. But the other part, when I looked at my journal, when I was all done, there's nothing about the business. It was all about my wife, Jackie. And it was about how selfish this was, this thing that I was doing and you know how selfless she was to allow me to do these things. And what I realized is, Actually, this was about the business because you know what? If things aren't great at home and I don't have my priorities right with my family, then the business doesn't do well. And I went, well, that makes sense. I mean, hey, I'm in the coaching business and leadership development. Um, people have to be healthy, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever that means to them. But, you know, they've got to be right as a whole person. So I actually did hear the unheard. But if I hadn't stepped back away from all the noise and the email and all that crap, I wouldn't have gained that wisdom. Well, you brought up the journal. And I remember in your book, you said that there was a retired Air Force colonel who would have made general if he hadn't crossed into Cambodia to save some military guys, right? 
And he said that the most important thing is to keep a journal. And you said that you would never let anyone read your journals until mm -hmm. you're dead and gone. Why <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you let people read your journals? Just to clarify, he got in trouble not for trying to rescue. He was seeking revenge for um, oh. his, I remember he, some of his fellow pilots were shot down and he went in seeking revenge. That's what, what oh, got that him in trouble. Oh, that makes more sense. Okay. And he said, and I remember him saying, I don't care if you remember that. I want you to remember. And I think it was Lincoln or somebody said, all, all and again, forgive the sexism. He said, um, all great men have kept a journal. And I remember thinking, well, I want to be a great man. All great men and mass shooters <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that are men. Yeah. Well, and I remember thinking, I, I want to be a great man. I, I guess I need to keep a journal. And so I, I did. But your question about why wouldn't I let someone read that? I don't know. When I wrote that, which was now six years ago, that's how I felt. I, right now, I, I'd probably be more okay with it. You know, my kids, they always joke that, Dad, we can't read them because we can't read your handwriting. <laughs> um, yeah, but I wrote down a lot of stuff that the kids said. It was all the journals in hindsight. You know, if somebody like analyzed them, they would probably see somebody that was obsessed with work and, you know, trying to be successful at work. And, and oh, yeah, and there's a family and there's kid stuff. But I'm guessing there'd be a little bit of out of balance because that was what, what I wrote down. You don't keep a journal anymore? Yes, but not daily because I'm writing so much with our podcast and blog. So I'm, I'm always writing, but not that same way. And again, I was sort of capturing fatherhood. But before I was published, what I wasn't good at was um, what Harry Chapin would say, write about your feelings, not the things you never did. And I wasn't very good back then about writing about my feelings being really honest. That's what you learn as a writer is you have to tell the truth. And even in writing the book, there's a lot of things I didn't put in there. And there's a lot of things I did that were really difficult to put in there. What was the most difficult thing to put in your book? Stuff about what my dad and my sister said about me not making it. Because I thought, what if they read this and they're hurt? You know, the fact that, that they said I was going to fail when I went through special forces. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's, part of the story that that's you know i'm not a perfect person they're not a perfect but the part that they're mentioned in the book is in a negative light i'm like gosh i feel terrible but that's the truth and that's an important part i also put in there a letter i wrote that never got mailed to my parents i felt pretty vulnerable putting that in there well you almost got kicked out of the special force qualification course yeah so what's up with that <laughs> yeah. yeah i was um there's a guy, I don't remember his whole name. I just remember his name was Lowen. That was his last name, Lowen. And he was a big dude and he helped me on the rucksack marches. I mean, he, you know, he was, and that's where I struggled, was carrying a lot of weight, walking real fast. I could run forever, but walking really fast with short legs, it felt like somebody had a flamethrower on my shins. But in order to get our food, you had to do pull-ups or you had to climb a rope for each meal. If you didn't, you didn't get your food. And you had like seven minutes to open your food, the cans and eat. So anyway, he was struggling with um, pull-ups. And so I got behind him and I was kind of helping him. The instructors saw that as cheating. I was cheating. And so they called us in literally on the carpet and stood there. And I was like Perry Mason, you know, like, a, a, like being a lawyer, defending myself. And they're like, we're going to throw you out. You know, you were cheating. You were caught. It's an honor violation, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, look, isn't this course all about teamwork? 
you encourage us to help each other on the road marches. And this guy has been helping me. And I was simply demonstrating teamwork, helping him succeed. They kind of looked at each other and they, they went, get out of here. <laughs> and that was it. And I like beat feet. So you pointed out consistency, like you are consistent with what they right. preach. Yeah. So. And, and that's also when I um, got out of the army and they said, well, and I was interviewing for sales jobs and they said, well, you have no experience selling. And I talked about um, briefing colonels and generals as a military intelligence officer, but I'd tell that story too about my first sales experience. <laughs> was keeping my butt in the, in, the, in the program. And you know, and it is funny because Jeffrey Pfeffer, who wrote Leadership BS, would say a leader's first job is not to get fired because you can't lead anybody if you get fired. <laughs> That's good. You know, all of your service occurred during peacetime. Do you ever yep. wish that that wasn't the case? And it's interesting you ask that as a civilian, because a military person would never ask that. They never would. And I kind of knew it was an inappropriate question in terms of- No, it's not inappropriate. You no, know, I mean, it's kind of verboten or whatever, but of course, this is about curiosity, so you I know, have to ask No, it. it's a good question. You know what? I don't. I don't at all. And I'll tell you why. And through my medical training, without going into gory detail, we were exposed to um, a lot of trauma. I mean, gunshot wounds and different things. I saw firsthand the power of a single bullet. And it just amazed me that when bullet goes through flesh, I mean, sometimes there's no blood. Sometimes there's just a tiny little entry wound and a tiny little exit wound. Sometimes there's no exit wound. But when you get in there, when it's a high velocity bullet, the damage is enormous. And what you have to do is debreed the muscle, preserve the nerves, the arteries, the veins, and when you debride the muscle, the muscle's gone forever. I mean, it's gone. And I remember seeing that and I'm thinking, okay, that's, you know, when it like hits a hamstring. What happens when the bullet hits the heart, when it hits the brain, you know, all. And I remember thinking, I mean, this is serious business. It's violent. Again, the Department of Defense is supposed to be a deterrent to war. I mean, no good soldier wants war. They want peace. So my time in service was, I served as one of millions. It was basically a deterrent to the then Soviet Union and the, the quote unquote spread of communism. So the fact that, that I never had to get tested, I'm okay with that. Do I have a curiosity to wonder about how I would have done and you know would I have been brave or would I have been cowardly? Of course I have, I have that curiosity, but do I wish I had been tested? No, because I'm pretty confident that I would have behaved the way I was trained. The descriptor, the description rather of the bullet, it's because you were able to see it maybe and really analyze it versus having you know, 50,000 bullets all in one fell swoop that you can perhaps appreciate the magnitude of what one bullet can do. Yeah, and I was a medic as an enlisted guy, and I loved, I loved being a medic. I loved being a medic, and I loved jumping out of planes. That was my two favorite things um, when I was an enlisted guy in special forces. And, and, and I was an instructor, and I loved the platform, as we would call it. And What's I the platform? Was standing up at the edge the, of the oh, no. plane? What's no, the platform? the platform is when you're presenting, when you're teaching. Oh, oh, the it platform. Was, the, oh, the, yeah, it's okay. literally, it literally would, would be a wooden platform. That's what we called it. But I love that stuff the most. I wasn't the guy that, you know, I loved going to the gun range. That wasn't me. 
you know, a lot of guys, I mean, that was what they're all about. That was, that wasn't, you know, the thing that I, that I loved. So, um, you said that someone in the military wouldn't ask that question. And that makes me wonder what is a question that a civilian would ask and someone in the military wouldn't ask? And why is that? Are there certain things that are inappropriate for non military people to ask military people? Let me explain why I said that. Because guys that didn't serve in combat, you know, would always kind of go, well, I serve, but, you know, again, I, I didn't serve in combat like you did. You know, I'm not a combat. And they'd go, it doesn't matter. This is what military guys would say. They'd say, it doesn't matter. You served. You were willing. You wrote a blank check to the government. They just didn't cash it in. You were lucky. So don't ever be, you know, apologize that you served, you know, you served in peacetime. It's just the luck of the draw kind of thing. But I also remember this guy getting in my son's face at West Point one time. He gave him advice and he said, Kevin, I know you want to serve and you want to do what you're trained to do and all that, but don't ever say to your, your men, because he was infantry and there weren't women at the time, he, he said, don't you ever say to your men, gosh, I, I can't wait to deploy because some of those men will have deployed and they will have had the worst experience of their life. Your time will come. You will deploy. Don't ever say that though. So that's why I brought that up. But you know, when we go out on the expeditions, the special operations guys will always say, I'm surprised they didn't ask me more questions because I told them, ask me anything. Because if there's ever a time when you can ask special operations guys anything, I mean anything, like, did you kill somebody? I mean, it's out there and they'll answer it. And even if you ask something that, let's say, is like classified, none of those guys are going to say, oh, I can't tell you. I can't tell you that. They'll just answer a different question. They'll just they'll just answer to the best that they can, but they won't say, oh, that's classified or here's what I can tell you. They'll just answer it. What would be the one question that they would get the biggest return on if they asked the military, the special forces guys, but they just don't do it? I, That's a great question on the spot. I would ask, I would ask, what makes you guys different? Because I think you would get the same response you get from what Stanley McChrystal would say. And he would say, hey, they're just average Americans. They're thrown into extraordinary circumstances, but because they have a common purpose and a trust, they perform extraordinarily. And you think, well, gosh, if it's that simple, a common purpose and a trust, how do we replicate that? And training. Oh, of course, and training. And a high level of competence, which leads to the confidence and all that. But I would ask, I, I would be interested to get all those opinions. What makes you guys different? I think you would see on the scale of humility and confidence, you'd see way more humility than braggadocio. Well, that might be what makes them different. I'm thinking about the whole leadership followership thing. I and mean, you and I have talked about this before and, and my challenge to the obsession of leadership. Mm -hmm. When you were enlisted, and then you were an officer later. What is something that you believed as an enlisted person that you realized was completely, and I'm asking you this with no preparation, so this is a tough one, but that you realized was completely wrong when you were in more of a leadership role as an officer? So my enlisted time was as a special forces where everybody's a leader and everybody's elite. And then I went to the conventional army, the regular army as an officer where there aren't elite people. Special forces, I always said, really smart people. Sometimes you got people with questionable ethics and morals, but really smart, 
really resourceful. And then as an officer, it's different. So what I saw in special forces as leadership was really great leaders, high level of collaboration, high motivation. What I saw as a as an officer was that I didn't see as many people that were interested in my growth and development as I thought there would be. And I thought that it would be a lot easier. You know, I could just tell people what to do. And I didn't realize the whole concept of people support what they help create. People support what they help create. Right. That great questions, you know, lead to commitment. You know, directives and commands lead to compliance, but not true engagement. So that was something I learned the hard way, I would say. So that makes me think that the Green Berets were in some ways more homogenous than your experience in the general army. Absolutely. Which leads to a tough question, but makes me curious about the whole concept of diversity. Does that hint at a downside to diversity? Absolutely. Just talked about this to a, a special unit at Fort Bragg the other day, actually, that all their guys are the same, very much so. The danger, of course, is, is their group think. Now, this is a high-performing unit. I, what I would say is one of the best teams the world has ever known. Their selection process is unbelievable. But everybody's very similar, very few outliers. When I went through the training, we always tried to figure out, what do we all have in common? One, none of us were from rich families. I mean, working class families. And most of us were from the South or New England, the tough areas of New England. Why was that? Was just the recruit the way it recruited, or well, think about it now. I mean, most of the the army today is from the South in Texas, Midwest, and the West is is not represented well at all. We have the same fifty percent of the people in the military, I think. And don't quote me on this, but somewhere about that, have an immediate past family member that served. So, for thirty, forty years, less than one percent of the, the the families of this countries have defended this country that really know what this is all about and what goes on you know, every day. It's these same families. This may hint at a bigger, yeah. larger societal problem yeah. that I don't even want right. to go down that rabbit hole, but I, yeah. I mean, I do, but I won't. Yeah, but the other thing that I noticed with the, everybody was all of us were either firstborns or we were from divorced families. That was my experience back then. That's what we looked at. We went, well, we're all from the South. We're all from tough areas in New England. And we're either firstborn or from screwed up divorced families. Like, oh, that's interesting. Now, I don't think that that's the same demographic today. I think most of them are from the South, but I think- And that's true. Is, is that true for all branches of the military or just the army? I don't know about all branches. My son went to New York to college, to West Point, and came back with a Southern accent after four years in, is in that New York. right? Yeah. I mean, because everybody at West Point, I mean, they're all Southern. So with that issue, what is the one thing that you're skeptical about with women in these positions? If you had to pick yeah. one thing that you were skeptical about. I'm not skeptical. I'm not skeptical. I, 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 I think that's awesome. And I think there's a role. There's probably a bunch of people that agree with me and a bunch of people that vehemently disagree with me. But especially now, I think there's a role when we think about unconventional warfare and the fact that you have to win hearts and minds and you're dealing with men and women in villages and children. So I, I definitely think there's a role and I've trained and done a lot of athletic pursuits with some crazy fit women that could 
kick my butt all over the place. So, and again, not skeptical. The only thing to take into consideration is, you know, it, it, it does change the team dynamic. And, and again, I'm not a guy that's worried about like, oh, they're going to think about this and there's dating. And I'm, I don't think that way. I think it's a different dynamic. When men are all by themselves, they behave differently than when men are with women. Now, I've never been around all women because I'm a guy and I, I don't know. We're not going to let you into right. that I, inner sanctum I, secret. I yeah. But I, I, I spent my career in healthcare, which is mostly women. And I teach MBA students, which over the last decade has been mostly women. So I think for being a guy, I think I, I have a pretty good beat on it. But again, the dynamic's different. So what are all the things that have to be taken into consideration? One of the things we're going to try to figure out next month on our crucible, where we have five out of 14 of our participants are women, is not only the diversity of thought, but what are the biases and the assumptions that we're making all the time, both, both men and women, that we're not even aware of? And what can we impart as far as wisdom to other teams as they really strive for this diversity away from groupthink? And, and are they okay being uncomfortable? Are they okay giving up control? Are they okay and changing the way they make decisions, criteria, process, authority? Because that's ultimately what's, what's got to change is it's, it's about decisions that are made. But if the leaders weren't even comfortable asking the special forces guys enough questions, how are you going to ensure on this crucible that the elephant in the room questions are pushed to the fore? I think part of that is the expectations that we set. As an example, tonight we have our third conference call. We'll have four conference calls before we go and we talk about that as expectations. And, you know, kind of a magical thing happens on these as well is the car rides to the trailhead. You know, there's small groups and there's interesting dynamics that, that happen on those. But again, it's kind of like strangers on planes. People share all kinds of crazy truths and that happens on these. They're like, they're with people that are struggling with the same stuff they're struggling with. Everybody is at a transformation point. I mean, almost all the time they're at a crossroads and they're trying to figure stuff out. And now they have people at the same place trying to figure out the same problems, dealing with the same issues. I, I want to be a fly on the wall oh, yeah. there. I want to be a fly on the wall recording all this stuff. Now well, I'm so curious about what you'll learn on well, this particular crucible. Well, here's what's really cool. Our videographer is first and foremost a storyteller. So we're going to get the lens of her as a storyteller, but we're going to get her as the lens of a woman because we've never had a videographer on one of these trips that's been a woman. So that's going to be cool too. I'm excited to see what happens. That sounds incredible. I have so many questions for you and I would love to be able to get you to come back after that so I can pry into some yeah. of these other things. And I know you have to run. So I want to make sure that we have time. I have these things called a QCQs, which are quick yeah. curious questions. And yeah. I may only have a time for one or two depending on your, depending uh, on on your schedule. On my verbosity. No, no. I mean, it's <laughs> I, I could go on and on. What is one thing that you believe that most people think is crazy? What is one thing? Say, say that question what again. What is one thing that you believe that most people think is crazy? Something I believe that other people would think is crazy. I think it's, it's probably about the whole idea of personal self-discipline. You know, like, I don't understand addiction. I mean, rationally I do. But I don't, I don't understand like 
if you're addicted to something, why can't you just stop? And I admit that. I, and I know it's a big problem and it's a disease. And I know all that. But part of it is like, why, why can't you stop? Or if you want to work out, like, why can't you just get up at 530 and work out every morning? Like, why, why, why can't you do that? That I don't understand. That's a perfect example. And I, I don't want to take up time, but this one little story I think is instructive because I used to find the same thing, particularly with addiction and food. Mm -hmm. um, and I come from a family of big people, let's just put it that way. And a friend of mine who had lap band surgery told me that before she had lap band surgery, she would be at Thanksgiving and people would say, oh, I'm so full. And she never understood the concept. She never felt it. She just faked it. She said, oh, me too. But she never felt satiated. After she had lap band surgery, for the first time she felt what it felt like to be satiated and she mm. understood what people were talking about. And that made me realize that perhaps what we see is not all that there is. Mm -hmm. And so that might be why I felt that way. So that kind of shifted my my thought on particularly food addiction. Yeah. The other question that I think would be fun for people to hear from you, particularly with all of your adventures, is what is the best under $100 purchase that you've made in the last year or so? Uh -huh. My Houdini jacket from Patagonia, $99. Your Houdini jacket. And these will all be in the show notes too. So yes. we'll make sure. It's, it's, it's a super lightweight, super tiny compressible jacket. It's not completely waterproof, water resistant. It is the perfect jacket for Portland in the winter for running or hanging out or anything. I wore it in Patagonia as sort of an insulating layer. It is like the like when I'm traveling on a plane and and I've got a short sleeve shirt and it gets cold on the plane, I can put that. I mean, it is oh, it's awesome. I'm walking down to REI today. Yeah, the Houdini jacket in Patagonia. If you want to be a sponsor for the Crucible, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that in the show notes and I'll link it. I'll I'll ping them on the link. And the final thing is what what is the one book that you've gifted the most? Not well, including your book. Not oh, not including my book. The book I've gifted the most is probably How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. Mm. Because what I love about that book is it, it talks about living a life of values and, and what success means and how you have to really be careful not to let success overtake what you need to do as a family person. Family has to be a very high priority. And I love the way that he eloquently states that. Perfect. And again, all of those will be in the show notes, including where people can go to find you, learn more about what you do. So tell people where they can go to find you and maybe even learn yep. about how, to, how they can go on one of your crucibles okay, or great. apply to. You can find everything you need to know and videos and all that stuff, selfreliantleadership.com. And then from there, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, all that stuff. And the name of your podcast? The Leadership Podcast. Okay, but they can find all that on your website. Yep. Okay, thank you so much. I know you oh, have thanks. to run. I could talk to you all day. I really oh, appreciate your being here. Thank you. Thanks. Jan Rutherford is a self-reliant leadership expert and co-host of the Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One. You can find show notes and all resources mentioned at AppliedCuriosityLab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering 
curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.